Welcome into another edition of the Data and Victory podcast, only available on musketeerreport.com. I am Rick. The legend Brian Snow is on the line, as is Dan. Obviously, we've been podcasting frequently this year, so um, not a lot to talk about on this show. It'll probably be very brief. Uh, the Musketeers are ranked seventh in the Big East standings currently at five and six in conference play. They are 16 and eight overall following a three-game winning streak, and we're going to break all that down. Gentlemen, it's great to hear your voices. How are you? Rick, we always hear your voice since you're just a multimedia superstar. The voice of the... I always want to say voice of the Norse, but I never get it right. I always, I always end up... It always comes out the voice of the noise, which isn't right. Yeah, I'd prefer but, if you uh, didn't do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll scrap that one as a catchphrase. Yeah, just put um, that one in your back pocket. I want to start with a. Can I can I throw a topic out there to begin with? For sure, yeah. I, I kind of want to repeat something that you did, but I want to hear what you guys think. Which Rick, you asked uh, Skinner to come up with a one word description for Xavier this season, and uh, he said schizophrenic, which I thought was. <laughs> I mean, Me and probably, Skinner came up with the same word. Oh God! Wow. Well, fire away then, Snow. You tell us what. Tell us uh, your your reasoning. I, and I'm going to consult my well-thumbed thesaurus to figure out something. Yeah, no, I need a minute to recover from this. It, it was it was word or phrase. So if you need a, a couple words to get it in, you're allowed to use that creative license. I, oh, wow, that just threw me off. But I mean, it's just this this not only the team, but player to player outside of Tyreek Jones's last three games, where you know what you're getting rebounding wise, like to the number. Um, you never know what you're getting ever, not from possession to possession, not from half to half, not from game to game, not from week to week. You have absolutely no idea. And sometimes it's really good. And then other times it's, it's really bad. I think the best, the best way I describe it is, and I heard someone else use this, so I, uh, I'm, I'm admitting I'm stealing it. Sometimes when you watch Xavier play, you think their players are going to do option a, which is good. Option B, which is not as good, and they just go to option F, and you're like, how the hell did you even get there? And that's been this team. I feel like the person who said that was close to the program. Likely. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, so the the word that initially came into mind was like an enigma or enigmatic in that it's not really something that you know how to describe, but that's not it at all. I mean, if anything, they're very predictable in the fact that they're completely unpredictable. Um, so that that's probably what I would say is that they're predictably unpredictable. Uh, they kind of do similar things in every game. It's just sometimes they come off and sometimes they don't. And as Snow says, when it's not working, uh, they which has happened a few times this year, it's just it's just puzzling. And then sometimes you can't distinguish between whether it's a breakdown in the system or if the system is completely sound and it's just that the players can't translate it on the court. Um, A perfect example of that, Brian, you brought this up on the board. I I actually went out to Omaha for the Creighton game. And the first five minutes of that game, I mean, I thought and I, I thought that the staff had a really good game plan for that game offensively. It seemed like they could get every shot they wanted but they missed like a thousand layups in that game and they didn't score a field goal until like six minutes into the game. And you're just looking at it like, what in the hell is going on? 
fast forward to last Sunday, and it's uh, 11 18 a.m. Eastern time, and Xavier is leading the number 10 team in the country 30 to 6 on their home floor. And it's just like, all right, man, I'm just along for the ride at this point. And I genuinely don't think they did anything different energy wise, effort wise, execution. I mean, execution, well, execution in terms wise, of they made yeah. the shot. Yeah. But like in terms of running the play and like sticking, like they got the same shots. They just made layups against Seton Hall that they couldn't do against Creighton. Which is baffling. Yeah, the Seton Hall result looks so good. And I feel like everyone kind of will point that to as like Xavier's best game. And and maybe it is. But to me, that performance wasn't that exceptional. I thought like Xavier played as, as well as they've played in Big East play so far. But Seton Hall was really poor for the first 20 minutes well, that, of that game, well, at least 15. That may be true, and I and I probably agree with you on that, Rick, but what was when has Xavier played better than that? I mean, because if you look down the schedule, it's like, uh... You could argue that Paul was their, was their cleanest game outside. I mean, yes, in the last two minutes when they were getting tackled against a full-court press, like, they played... But I thought DePaul was probably their cleanest start-to-38-minute mark game. In Big East play? Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, I think... Um, TCU, UC, yeah, you could argue. TCU and UC were both pretty good. See, and, like, I was almost more impressed with the Providence win in some ways than I was the Seton Hall win because I thought they got a decent punch from Providence. They didn't, you know, get out to some crazy lead where they just had a huge advantage all game and then had to just hang on. It was a, it was a scrappy game. They didn't get anything out of Najee Marshall, really. He played pretty poorly, aside from, I thought Brian brought up a good point, that he limited his mistakes in that game and, and just kind of realized it wasn't his night. Um, but it, to me, the Providence win was almost more impressive because they won the way they have to win and did that kind of exceptionally. They were really tough. They were really locked in defensively. Yeah. I mean, they, they've played well, though. And even against Marquette, they did a lot of the transferable things. They just made so many stupid decisions that they couldn't get out of their own way, and then they couldn't make a free throw. But like even against Marquette, I, I think the process part of it turned completely in terms of, all right, like they're doing the process-oriented things to win. It's just you can't commit eight of the dumbest basketball players known to mankind and win. Well, one how, in the last five minutes. How costly is that Marquette loss now, looking back, when you think back to the fact that Marcus Howard wasn't on the floor for the final 12 minutes of regulation in both overtimes. They had the game in their grasp multiple times and just kept giving it away. I, You're at home. I, like If you have that win and your record is 6-5, and five, it's... To, you, you're looking at the season totally differently right now, I feel like. You know, Rick, as that game was was moving toward, you know, when, when Howard went out, what I was kind of thinking to myself as I was watching it was this may be the equivalent of the Creighton game from last year where Xavier stumbles all over themselves but gets out of here with a win, and that just kind of breaks the tension. I know they'd beaten Georgetown at home, but they, they had gotten their doors blown off at Marquette. Seton Hall and Creighton had beaten them by double digits on their own floor. I just felt like that was the opportunity where they could, you know, pop the cap off and uh, and start winning. And you get and like you say, like all the circumstances played in their favor. Uh, Marcus Howard going out, Quentin Gooden having, I mean, his best offensive game in how long? He hit five threes, maybe the best single game shooting performance other than Kiki Tandy going four for four 
that any Xavier players had all year. And, uh, and not being able to close out, as Brian says, was just incredibly frustrating. And that's what made the Seton Hall game so surprising because you would think, uh, and this goes back to being unpredictable, you would think that a team that just takes an absolute gut punch like that at home and then walking, walking into an arena where they, I guess they've won the last two years, but historically they, they struggled at against a team that was flying and just beating them to a pulp. I mean, who, who knows what's going on at this point? But, yeah, the Marquette game is incredibly frustrating at this stage because if they'd gotten that win, that, that path to nine conference wins and, and probably making the NCAA tournament looks a lot easier at this point than it does right now. I'll still say the path to nine ain't all that challenging as it stands right now. Uh, yeah, I agree. I do agree with that. We'll, we'll talk about that. But but it, but think about it. If they had won that game, I mean, you would yeah. be, um, be in real good shape. You know what? You know what's interesting though. I almost think it, this sounds so absurd because it wasn't like they were undefeated. I almost think they needed to lose that game. Um, because I was at practice. The, the day they left for Seton Hall, so whatever that would have been Friday. I can't remember what day they played Marquette, honestly. Yeah, they was, played Marquette on a Wednesday. Wednesday. Okay, so I was at practice on Friday. Um, and to a man, multiple people told me, we're winning. And I'm like, really? You guys suck. They're like, <laughs> we're winning. And... That hadn't come out earlier in the season. I don't know if something changed after that game. If you know, some people looked in the mirror. I have no idea. But it was an, it was a very odd confidence from people who aren't always very confident. Well, let me ask you, kind of a follow up there, because you know they get off to the two and six start in Big East play. They've won three straight, including that improbable seventy four sixty two win at Seton Hall to to start this little streak. What's the biggest difference? you've seen from X during the turnaround? I'm not asking for like five or six things because I know there's been multiple, but what's the defensive rebounding? Yeah. Defensive rebounding, without question. And Tyreek gets a lot of the credit for that, but it's been more than just him. I mean, their defensive, they have dominated the glass. Even against, Providence was, it was pretty even. But again, Providence is just like them. They're an elite offensive rebounding team or damn near elite offensive rebounding team. And, Basically, Providence's offensive rebounds tended to be on like air balls and air banks and, you know, just weird bounces that in a basketball game you can't control. And when they're not giving teams second shots, because that's really the only time Xavier gives up threes are in transition and off second shots. And if you can limit the second shots and you're not giving up threes. And when Kiki goes under screens. Well, (laughs) sorry, Greg Sweeney. So there is that. But yes, um, so they're not giving up threes now. And even a good, you know, like not that Seton Hall or DePaul or Providence are great three-point shooting teams, but they're not even getting shots up. And I I think that's been the biggest difference is, is the defensive rebounding. Snow, I just took a look at the uh, at the statistics on that. And actually Providence for the year is about 33, 34% in offensive rebounding. Uh, and against Xavier, they were at 20 um, so that, that, that kind of, uh, statistically proves your point, uh, about how, how well Xavier did on the defensive glass last night. Have you ever yeah. seen anything like what Tyreek's doing? I, I mean, I don't really have too many fond recollections of the Tyrone Hill era, but David West didn't have a run like this. 
I'm not even talking about just Xavier specific. Is there another guy you can remember? I, I mentioned Kenneth Fareed could dominate games on the glass like Tyreek's doing, but I can't think of many guys I mean, that like, have been like this. The obvious is like Dennis Rodman would go on runs occasionally where he'd get 20 boards in an NBA game consistently. But right. what about on what about on Hell Delgado? No, I'm not. I don't think he ever really got like 18 like back to back to back. Yeah, and, and he would yeah. dominate the game as a scorer, too. I mean, he was such an all-around player. Tyreek's so unique in the fact that, like, they they can't really play through him in the post right now. He's not exactly delivering. I mean, he's been okay, but he's not delivering yeah. as, like, a big-time go-to scorer. It's strictly been him dominating the games with toughness and energy on the glass. I mean, now, I want people to, to keep in mind what I'm saying here. Like, the Anthony Davis freshman year the national title game when he played for kentucky he dominated that game just with block shots and rebounding yeah tyreek was basically the same way the first 35 minutes against DePaul, he made free throws late but if you look at tyreek jones was so far and away the best player on the court against DePaul, and he, i think he had like five points in the first 35 minutes of the game like that's the only time i remember saying like a guy who wasn't scoring at all was completely dominating a game was when Anthony Davis did it in the national championship game. One of the changes that the staff did make for this winning streak, but really happened before that they made it uh, before the, the game against Georgetown at home that they won. And they followed that up with back-to-back losses at Creighton and then home against Marquette, the double overtime game we referenced is the change to the starting lineup. You know, they, they brought Zach Fremantle in to play with multiple bigs, Jason Carter, Tyreek Jones, and Zach Freeman all across the front line, and then Paul Scruggs and Najee Marshall in the backcourt. Do you feel like the starting lineup change has given them anything? I don't. Honestly, I don't. What Maybe in a weird way, it's kind of changed the rotations so, so that the rotations are better for the next 36 minutes of the game. But I, I, I can't point to like, hey, you know, they're playing a mismatched starting lineup that makes no sense, and that's why they're winning. Like, I, I just logically can't do that. Dan, do you think it's been made a difference for him? I mean, it's it, it's tough to say. I mean, they, they, they have had a couple games where they've gotten off to really hot starts. Um, Seton Hall, obviously, but that was just a whole team thing. But DePaul, they got off to a nice start. I think Marquette, they were off to a pretty good start. But then, by contrast, they sort of laid an egg out of the, out of the, the, the gate at Omaha. So... I don't know, but I, I think there might be something to what to what Brian is saying. And I kind of wanted to ask you guys, because this was, Rick, this was something that came up uh, on a group chat that you and I are on, talking about um, kind of the way certain guys play together and that maybe Najee and Paul on the court at the same time uh, it, it, with, a, with a more conventional lineup doesn't work real well because of their, their skill set. So I wonder if that has, any, if you guys think that has anything to do with it. I mean, they still play together so often now because neither of them comes out of the game very much Right. that I just have a hard time getting with that. But what I think it does is it bring it brings in Kiki and Bryce at different times and like quietly, like Najee's actually shooting the ball pretty well from three in league play. I, I don't know the exact number, but he's shooting the ball pretty decently from three. So it, it kind of mixes in your three point shooting at a di- in a different way in a different kind of lineup and maybe that that's good i have no idea um i just think it's more they're sticking to their system better and controlling the controllables better and it's a correlation without causation 
you mentioned Najee Marshall in uh, Big East play. He is currently shooting 32.7% from three, um, but that in the month of January, he was shooting 40%. So he has definitely got improved as, as uh, play has gone on here in, in the conference. Um, I think the person most directly impacted by the starting lineup change has been Quentin Gooden. And obviously it hasn't just been the starting lineup change. It's also been more playing time for Kiki Tandy that's changed Quentin's role. But I do think moving him out of the starting lineup, I don't know how he took it personally, uh, but the, his body language has seemed to be good enough when he's been on the bench. And it seems like it's at least taken some pressure off of him to where when he gets in the games, like in the Providence game, he didn't play a whole lot. He didn't make a big impact, but it didn't seem like he felt he needed to force the issue as much. He made a nice drive and, and finished that one off in the lane on the one he got fouled. Um, he took a couple threes that maybe he didn't need to take, but he was open. They were good looks. I feel like as long as he's playing hard on defense and just not trying to do too much on offense, he has a solid role on this team off the bench. Yeah. Um, if he can be 15, 18, 20 minutes a game off the bench and play good defense, make a pass or two, maybe make an open three. I mean, I don't think that's what he wants his role to be. And I'm sure he's not happy about it, but at the same time, like, you know, it, it's what it's going to be. So he's his choices are accepted or don't accept it and and not play. So I, I I think it's kind of turned out pretty well for him, and it's turned out pretty well for the team because at the end of the day, Kiki Tandy's shot making and playmaking and energy and what have you, they need it. And Quinton just doesn't have that particular skill set, and he's not better than Paul Scruggs, and he's not better than Najee Marshall. So. It kind of is what it is. Yeah, I mean, there's not really a choice at this stage, and that's not what you would like to see uh, for a a guy that's been essentially a four-year starter. Um, uh, You certainly probably wouldn't have foreseen him being in a position where he would have to accept basically a role-player position for the second half of his senior year, but but obviously the coaching staff has determined that's the best way forward, and – you know, they've made this little push over the last eight days. I, I don't think you can second guess it. But really, had he bought into this similar role in his starting position, it, it never would have come to this, probably. You know, he never would have needed to come off the bench. He was just doing too many things that were outside of what his role should be on the team when he was in there. And it seemed like he wasn't adapting to what they were asking him to change. Um, but I, I think they can win with the way he's played uh, the last few games. Dan Bryan mentioned Kiki Tandy and what he's meant to this team over the you know the last month or so as he's seen his playing time increase. Do you think this season would have gone differently if he's healthy from day one? Oh, boy. That's an interesting question. Um, yeah, probably. I mean, I, I, I don't know that Xavier's uh, overall situation would be that much different at this point. But he would probably be a, he would certainly be a little bit further along in his development as far as being able to play within the defensive scheme, and uh, and might be in a position where he's demanding a lot more minutes than he's getting right now. Um, that's a really good question. I, I haven't really thought of it that way, but uh, but it, it's an interesting what if. I mean, I don't think they lose to Wake Forest if Kiki Tandy had practiced for a month. I'll be honest with you. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that Florida game definitely comes into question. And yeah. it's harder to see them starting off 2-6 and six in Big East play if he's, you know, if he's at the midway point of his freshman season as opposed to just kind of getting going as he's being thrust into Big East action, which is a tough thing to throw any freshman into. And, you know, I think if he would have had a slower buildup and, and really played throughout the non-conference, we'd be looking at a different player right now. And, uh, you know, he would have a little more runway left for the rest of the season as he started to figure it out because you can see as he's gone from just being a spot-up shooter to a guy that's looking to attack when he sees a crease in the defense, he can he can create off the dribble unlike really anyone else that the team has in addition to being the best shooter that the team has. He also, he's just completely fearless going into the lane. I mean, last night, uh, you know, it's a three-point game with a minute and a half left. He takes it right at a kid who's, was it, I don't know if it was Watson or their other big man, but took it right at the guy, drew a foul, hit the shot. So, I mean, yeah, the dude's fearless. And, and as Brian says, he's got a shot-making uh, ability that just does not exist elsewhere on this team. Uh, uh, just a just a, a level of a, a gear that he can get into that, that none of the other guards really have. Maybe Paul sometimes when he drives, but – but Kiki's shot-making ability just seems on a higher level. Yeah, I mean, he he can create a look for himself in a way that no other player can. He's quick enough. He's got a quick enough release. Like, he can just do it differently than anybody else on the roster in terms of scoring the ball. Now, he has to prevent the other guy from scoring a little bit more consistently. But, you know, that's a growth process. Yeah, and I mean, I think you you know, even towards the end of the game where I believe it was Pipkins got up on him, pressuring him, you know, just a few f- feet inside midcourt, and he just blows right by him, goes to the rim and draws that foul towards the end. And I think that speaks to the fearlessness Dan was talking about, where he's just always in attack mode, and this team kind of needed someone who that was natural for because the guys who were trying to make that their game, it's it's never really been their game. You know, Paul's never been that type of player. Najee's really never been that type of player. And obviously, Quentin wasn't that type of player either. Them trying to be that guy hasn't worked out. But for Kiki, it's so natural. It's just who he is. I mean, it's, it's really been a big boost. And I do think, you know, again, I, you're right, Dan. I don't know if they're in a totally different spot because this team has flaws that they may not have been able to overcome anyway. But I do think, you know, you maybe prevent one of the non-conference losses, potentially, and you go into Big East play with just one loss, and then I, I don't think you go 2-6 and six to start. Yeah, I mean, but every team gets injuries, so it is what it is. That's true. Um, while we're on the topic of freshmen, the development of Zach Fremantle, he's obviously been thrust in the starting lineup. There's been some ups and downs with him. What's been kind of your overall thoughts on how he's progressed as Big East play has gone on, Brian? Really good. I mean, really, really good. I mean, obviously he couldn't handle Nate Watson at all, but that is what it is. Um, He's got to get better at it. Got to get stronger. That'll come in the weight room. But offensively, he's really good. And then he plays hard, brings energy, tries on defense. So, I mean, I think you got to watch that kid and be like, wow, the future is definitely really bright for him. And, you know, when he's in the game, you, you don't feel that there's a you're not holding your breath like, oh, God, we got a freshman in the game. I think offensively he's been really, really good. I think defensively, as Brian says, there's been some lapses. Uh, 
he probably, especially with the the super physical guys that sometimes are on the post in this league, he he can get beaten up a little bit. But I've never seen him back down. At the same token, I don't think that's in his DNA. Uh, so his mother uh, would kill him. Exactly. <laughs> so I I look at this kid and I'm like, yeah, that that's one that I'm not going to worry about for the next few years. I mean, that's a guy that's going to be a solid contributor for this team and probably a star before he's done. Yeah, you can see the makings of why they were really high on this class, the way Kiki and, and Zach are playing right now. Um, but you've also seen the pitfalls of having to rely on two freshmen at the same time um, for a team. You know, if they were just pieces off the bench that were playing a role and giving you a spark, it'd be great. But this team needs them to be big-time kind of uh, go-to players right now. And we've seen why that can be an issue at times with their defense mainly. But then at times, you know, they've had other freshman mistakes as well. As well. Kiki with his decision-making and turnovers is, has been uh, – it's been game to game, you know. Some games he's great, and other games it's he kind of disappears and makes a few too many mistakes. So um, he he does he does have the nominee for one of the worst passes I've ever seen that ended up in a pick six against Providence. Yeah, the one at the at top the, of the key. Yeah, that was cool. Not ideal, but, and he's had a few of those. But that's just getting yeah. used to, you know, high major basketball. No, nothing's ever going to beat Justin Martin against Memphis. No. Uh, I don't. You know what? I don't actually think I saw that game, so I'm not sure. Clearly, because you would have a different opinion on worst pass. Oh wait a minute, was that the wait a minute? That was the home game where he like inbounded the ball to the wrong team. He basically threw an alley oop to the wrong team. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. Now I remember. Ten seconds left, up four. Option was, uh, F, like you read about. <laughs> uh, we were talking before about you know what this team needs to do to make the tournament. Dan mentioned getting to nine wins. Uh, I actually kind of disagree with that. I think they'll feel pretty good about it with eight wins. Um, Brian, what, what's kind of the magic number in your opinion, or do you not see it that way? Uh, obviously nothing's in a vacuum, but if, if they get to, let's say they only get to eight and they beat Villanova, DePaul and Butler all at home. That probably does it. Villanova and Butler will be quad one wins. DePaul be a quad two win. Most likely that would give them like nine ten quad one quad two wins they've won and they already have several road wins and several neutral wins that would probably do it but i think nine wins is that's what you're feeling pretty comfortable at that point i feel like with nine wins you're probably not sweating out being sent to dayton yeah that's fair I think with eight, that's in play. And I think with eight, you're exposing yourself to a lot of the vagaries of championship week. And as you guys know, this year in particular, it feels like there's been a lot of uh, topsy-turvy individual results in different leagues. And, man, uh, <laughs> you're, you're probably not worried about with the Big Ten, but but there are a couple leagues out there where a, a rogue uh, conference champion could uh, – could, could make life difficult for you if you're sitting in that like last three or four team in scenario. Yeah. And I think, you know, just from an overall wins perspective, that 20 next to your name looks better to the committee than 19 does uh, for whatever reason, taking nothing else into account, especially looking at how they handled things last year at the bubble. It seemed like win total was a big deal for them for some reason. Yeah. So um, I, I kind of I get it from that perspective that you may want to see that that ninth win to make sure you, you get to 20. Um, looking forward, this team has Butler 
on Wednesday at Hinkle Fieldhouse. Aside from any weather conditions that may occur and they'll have to deal with that adversity, how do you see the matchup, Brian? You think it, they match up well with Butler or not so much? Uh, sorry, Larkin's freaking out. Um, so it's Butler's an interesting matchup. In some respects, I actually think it's a it's a good matchup. But if you look at it in a way, Butler, they've been terrible defensively in league, like terrible. But that's because they give up a lot of threes and they foul a lot. However, they really defend twos. Well, Xavier doesn't get to the foul line and they don't make threes. So that that's going to be really interesting to see what happens there. Um, that said, I, I think Xavier's going to provide Butler a lot of problems on the defensive end because Butler tries to play bully ball on you. And then it's a lot of Kamar Baldwin mid-range jumpers. And Xavier does a really good job against single scorers like that because Najee Marshall's really, really good defensively. And then, you know, Paul Scruggs has good size. Bryce Moore's really good defender. So I I think it's going to be just an absolutely atrocious game to watch. But I think the matchup's okay. I don't think it's great, but I think it's okay. Dan, any thoughts on the Butler matchup or just a prediction in general for how you think it's going to go? My prediction is that Mario has a, uh, a series of running man branded umbrellas distributed to the bench just in case. <laughs> I'm here to tell you, it was not a drizzle. It was raining inside. You were on an unofficial visit that night, weren't you? I was. I was. It was raining. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed. Brian, Butler's the only team Xavier's yet to play in conference so far. Who's the best matchup in the Big East for Xavier, in your opinion? Man, that's an interesting question. I know this. Marquette and Creighton are the two worst. Um, I would probably say DePaul because they don't make threes. But it, I don't think... I don't want to say Xavier's matchup proof because that's the furthest thing from it. But I just don't think there's one style that gives them a ton of trouble. But teams that can make a lot of threes because Xavier doesn't, like if like you're against Marquette, it almost seems like or get more against Creighton seem like you know Xavier's getting buckets, and all of a sudden you keep looking at the scoreboard and they're down by more than they were two minutes ago. Yeah. So that's the worst matchup. I don't know that there is like a matchup point to be like, hey, that's a really good matchup for Xavier. But yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of the obvious candidates, right? It's Georgetown, DePaul, Providence, yeah. probably the teams that don't shoot it all that well and that are kind of towards the bottom of the conference. Yeah, I mean, and then St. John's happens to be a pretty good matchup for everyone this year. Yeah, St. John's just isn't super talented, right? So, so looking at these. Uh, last seven regular season games. Um, should we go through them real fast and make some predictions since we may not podcast again to like 2022? I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. All right. So at Butler. You're, you're driving yeah. the ship. Yeah. Well, oh, what I do you think? First? Yeah. I think they probably lose that game. I, I, I think that uh, Butler is – like Snow said, they're a team that has the capacity to make a lot of threes, and Xavier doesn't do the things that they that they kind of stink at. 
So I, I wouldn't be real positive about Xavier's chances at Hinkle, even though they're playing a lot better right now. I think they cover the seven that they're getting from Ken Palm, but they uh, lose as well. Yeah, it's tough. Even though, like, my head tells me Xavier's the better team right now, um, I would say that that's just not a game they're going to win. It was the same situation last year, really, where, like, they're going in. If they win that game, it's like, oh, man, they could really make the NCAA tournament. And they had every opportunity to win it and just didn't. I could see it being the same way this year where, you know, Butler comes away with the three, four, five-point win. Kamar Baldwin hits a big shot at the end, something like that. That's, that's kind right, of what man. I'm expecting as well. Um, Dan, what do you think about the St. John's game? I think Xavier will win this one. Um, I, I I think there was some hope that St. John's would, would have taken some steps forward from last year. I, I don't really – the times that I've seen them this year, I haven't been that – super impressed with them. Um, X had a really, I, I think X played pretty, my recollection, and I won't say that this is gospel because it was over a month ago, but uh, but my recollection was that Xavier had a kind of a poor start in the home game against St. John's and struggled to find rhythm and then was able to kind of see them off in the second half. And, and uh, Xavier seems like they're in a better rhythm now than they were at that point. So I, I would expect Xavier to win that game. Yeah, that was the game where Kiki went nuts in the second half. Um, but I, I just think Xavier's—they're built to beat St. John's, and they will do that in the friendly confines of Carneseca Arena. I think they will win that one too. Are you guys surprised at all that uh, both Ken Palm and Bart Torvik have them as a one-point underdog there? No, because that—that's season-long data, and you know St. John's is. You know, they were playing a little bit better, you know, in the early to mid part of the season. And Xavier was playing worse the early to mid part of the season. And now things have kind of flipped a little bit. So I think Xavier's metrics are undervalued relative to how they're playing right now. And St. John's metrics are a little overvalued to how they're playing right now. Yeah, if you're interested, they are uh, it's 67-60 in favor of Butler. And uh, on Ken Palm and Bartorvik has them 66-60 against Butler. So uh, both of them pretty similar on that game as well. Dan, what do you think about the Villanova game at home on Saturday, the Fe- February 22nd? I think Xavier will win this game. Um, I, I Like, this, this Nova team is vulnerable in my view. Xavier had a chance uh, at Villanova to, to in the late going of that game to, to get back into it, to get it down to one point to one possession. Um, and that, which obviously is something unprecedented for any Xavier Villanova game played in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, and I just think I, I, I mean, last year Xavier was able to really take them to the woodshed at Cintas and really limit them. And uh, I kind of think that's the way it's going to play out. I mean, it's worth remembering Xavier hit their first three in that Villanova game in the last 30 seconds of the game, Um, which granted, (laughs) I'm not, I'm not here to tell you that Xavier is a good three point shooting team, but they have at least been in the range of acceptable numbers over the last couple of weeks. So yeah, I think, I think Xavier will win that one. And I think that is the, the sort of like unexpected hinge point that gets X back to 500 in conference for the season. Uh, I'm with Dan on that one. 
I just I think one the Xavier team's actually built to beat Villanova because Villanova they like rely on you doing dumb things defensively, like just breaking down. And for the most part, I mean, they Xavier might make a dumbass foul when you're shooting, but they don't tend to just like break down. And Xavier has like a guy for Sadiq Bay and Najee Marshall. They have bigger guards for Colin Gillespie. Um, you know, they just they they're just you know Tyreek Jones is a different player right now. So I just think Xavier wins that game, and you know that'll be especially if if Xavier somehow wins both Butler and St. John's. That Sintas will be going bonkers heading into the game. And even if it's just one of the two, if the fans feel pretty good about life, I think the atmosphere is going to be a lot for those St. John's freshmen, or excuse me, for the Villanova freshmen. So I, I would bet on, on on Xavier winning that game, you know, maybe five, six points. I'm on the other side. I, I don't see it. I just, I think it'll be a good game. I think it'll be close in the end. I don't see this team pulling out a close game against Villanova, um, regardless of where it's played. Um, Ken Palm has it as a one-point Xavier win. Bart Torvik has it as a two-point Xavier win. And that brings us to the DePaul game on Tuesday night at the Cintas Center. Um, Ken Palm has it as a six-point win for Xavier. Bart Torvik has it as a six-point win for Xavier. Dan, what do you think? Same, except I think they'll win by more than six. Okay, Dan saying take the points. I would say six to eight-point Xavier win. Yeah, I, th- I think they smacked this DePaul team at home. Um, they controlled the game up there, and I didn't even think they played all that well, to be honest, outside that big stretch. So uh, I-, I expect a big win against DePaul at home. And that brings us to the Georgetown game the following Sunday. Um, this is a three-point loss, according to Ken Palm, and a one-point loss, according to Bartorvik. What do you guys think? I got a sneaking suspicion this may be a little bit of an unexpected setback. I actually I actually think that's one Xavier gets. You know, it's going to be – it's not a tough atmosphere. Georgetown's so reliant on Mac McClung to score. Um, they're very, very thin right now up front. I just – I'm going to go with Xavier in a, in a close but comfortable win. Yeah, I'm with Brian. I think Xavier pulls this one out. And the point about Mac McClung is why I think Xavier wins this game because, you know, even though he scored 19 in that first game against Xavier, he had to work so hard for it. He was like, he shot a terrible percentage from the field and didn't hit a three in that one. I don't think he can get free against the defenders Xavier has for him, whether it be Najee or Paul or whoever else is on him at different times. Um, I think they'll pull this one out on the road. And uh, that will bring us to the game at Providence the following Wednesday. Two-point loss, according to Ken Palm. A three-point loss, according to Bartorvik. Dan, what do you think? So Xavier's won once at Providence in the since the Big East no. alignment? They won last year, and then they won on the J.P. McCura shot game. Ah, you're right. Okay. They did win last year up there. Um, you sure about that? I guarantee it. I was really hung over watching the game in Chicago. They you know did win at right. Providence seventy five sixty one. That's right. That was the first game. That was right after the Creighton game, and that was the first game where Xavier like opened the floodgates and started playing really well. Tyreek had um, nineteen and twelve. So I think Xavier loses at Providence but beats the puppies on senior day at home uh, to get to nine and nine. 
I think they get smacked to Providence, and then they beat Butler at home. So, Snow, you've got them at 10 and 8 then, right? I don't know. I think I was told there'd be no math. I think if you tot up the numbers, that's what you'll find. Yeah, I have them losing, losing to Butler, losing to Providence. Dan, where'd you have them? Nine and nine. Nine and nine. Yeah, I think they win at Providence, but lose the home game to Butler. So I had a loss at Butler, a loss to Villanova at home, and a loss at home to Butler. So I have them at nine and nine as well. The weird thing is nine and nine may still put you on Wednesday night in the Big East tournament this year, depending on how the the tiebreakers break out. You know, it's going to be really interesting if Xavier beats Butler on uh, Wednesday. Butler would be in the Wednesday game as it stands, you know, that moment. (laughs) That's wild. That is wild. That's why that Providence game was so important for Xavier, because it, it drew them a little bit closer to that huge group that was sitting there at like six and four, six and five. Yeah. Now, now they're one game back of both, uh, both Butler and Providence with three games, like three games combined against those two. Yeah. And Marquette Creighton and Nova all sit at seven and four now. And they're not catching Marquette or Creighton because in essence, they're three games back right. of those two teams. Right. All right. I have um, one more question for you guys about big East real quick. Who is sure. your player of the year, Miles Powell or Marcus Howard? Marcus Howard. I think it's Miles Powell for me. I'm with Dan. I'm I'm going Miles Powell. They've just now. I think Miles Powell will win it, but if I had a vote, I would go Marcus Howard. I think he's been the best player in the league. Yeah, it's the old it's the old dilemma. Do you pick the best player on the best team, or do you dig further into the stats to to maybe give it to somebody else. For me, I, I kind of find those two guys pretty close in a lot of respects. And just what Seton Hall's done as a team this year is really impressive to me. So I probably would be inclined to go Powell. I would too. I just feel like he's the tougher matchup. I mean, Marcus Howard's ridiculous too, obviously. But to me, Miles Powell, you, no one can take him away at this point. Like, I, I don't think there's a defender in the country that's taken Miles Powell away. <laughs> 11 a.m. start times do well that hey the old pancake bar is a different story we've all had a food coma brian don't judge we don't fat shame on this podcast especially given our conditions i mean i fat compliment i don't fat shame that's a fair point all right uh you guys got anything else before we wrap this podcast up i just wanted to real quickly dan are you hollering at us from down the hallway what just happened no i'm sorry i got i got too far from the mic i'm not a professional like you um, Fair enough. I'm checking out the uh, the the latest bracketology. Lenardi's got Xavier as a last four in, so a Dayton matchup with Mississippi State. Uh, Jerry Palm likes X a little bit more. Got him as a ten seed, um, playing USC. And the bracket matrix currently has Xavier as an eleven and the second. Of, oh. Yeah, this. Uh, I guess there are four. Uh, four at-large teams below them in the in the with the seed lines, but that was before. But that wasn't updated through Saturday's games. I don't think. Correct. And, uh, a, a lot of the teams that are sitting right near them just got or took losses. Virginia lost to Louisville, which isn't no shame in that. Memphis lost to USF. That I probably not feel feeling too great about. Uh, Florida got trucked by Ole Miss. Um, Stanford Cincinnati lost, lost to UConn. 
Cincinnati lost to UConn. Stanford lost to Colorado and Utah this week. Indiana lost to Purdue at home. St. Mary's got absolutely clobbered by uh, uh, Gonzaga, and Wichita got hammered by Houston uh, yesterday. So, or maybe that was today. Um, no, Xavier's, they're not safely in, but they're clearly on the right side of the bubble as it stands right now. Right. Now, that can change in a week. But when this stuff gets updated, I don't even I don't think you'll see them in a play-in game virtually anywhere. Yeah, I think probably I think probably a lot of people will have them in as like a nine or a ten. Um, well, and that's the thing. That's the thing I think. Safe spot to be. That's the thing I think is so unique about Xavier this year is I almost do feel like it is about just getting to a certain number for them because their resume is so cut and dry. There's no bad losses. I mean, the Wake Forest loss is what it is, but it's still quadrant two with no danger of slipping below that. And aside from that one loss, there's nothing else that's even remotely can be looked at as a blemish. So they really just have to get like a certain number of wins, essentially. And the other yeah. thing is there's no possibility of taking a bad loss. Right. Yeah. And honestly, they, they you know, in a weird way, does UConn, I think, was what, 60 or so in the net coming into today? They could get into the top 50. That turns into a tier one game. Yeah, they were at uh, they were at seventy three in the net coming into today. Okay, I was thinking they're sixty in Ken Pons. Correct. Sorry about that. Yeah, but even still, I mean, they uh, a win over UC. If they they've been playing better, if they keep it rolling, it it'd be interesting to see where they end up. Well, when the the internal investigation into the crooked AAC refs is complete, that that win may be reversed. Rick, you bring up a good point, Dan. I'm sorry. People forget that. Yep. Snow, anything else? Oh, you know what? I have one more question that I want to ask you guys. All right, uh, but that's this, it. Yeah, that's fine. This looks down the road a little bit, but uh, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, what Xavier will look like next year. A lot of excitement about the incoming class. But the the question, obviously, is going to be over Najee and Paul. And I think what you guys have kind of hewed to over the, over the whole time is, like, you, you think both of them would leave, but – it seems more likely that one comes back. So my question is, knowing what we know about the composition of Xavier's roster next year, which one which one fits better if they were to come back? Which one fits better in terms of play? Yeah, which one make which one? Nashi, because there's no one else like him on the roster. Yeah, plus they uh, plus kind of the weak spot right now on the roster is going to be the four, and Najee could play that position for you. Yeah, um, it has a little more versatility than Paul does. I, I think they're kind of similar players. Um, Najee just a little bit more talented and a little bit more versatile. Yeah, at the end of the day, the decision's not. And for just so everyone understands, I mean, like the decision for those kids isn't going to be like, "Am I going to the NBA?" It's, "Am I done playing college basketball?" Right. I mean, I I think they they're well aware of what their stock is. Now they're. The Kaiser Gates question, basically. Yeah, I mean, like like all kids, they're delusional and they think they're gonna, you know, play their way into the NBA in one workout. But you know, they're gonna know what their draft stock is. It's not like it's oh, they got bad advice. No, they're you know, Najee's twenty two, Paul's twenty two. You know, like they're big boys. They they know what they know what it is. Shout out to J.P. McKeera. Speaking of that, just got a 10-day contract with the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers. Call it from the Canton Charge. So that's nice. Very cool. Good for him. All right. Well, I think that does it for this edition of the Dana Victory Podcast, only available on musketeerreport.com. For Dan and the legend Brian Snow, I'm Rick. Thanks for listening, everyone.